Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to worship on Mother's Day. Um, And would you now grant me clarity of my speech? Would you do a work by your spirit so that the very words that you have given would find purchase in our hearts? Would you free us from our slavery to sin, even the very deception of the devil? Would you allow us to be those who hear Jesus and love him and love his word and are set free by his word? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I sought with tears and prayers to smother down the crowd of hideous images and sounds with which my memory swarmed against me. And still between my petitions, the ugly face of my iniquity stared into my soul. Those are the words of Dr. Jekyll from Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You probably know the pattern of that story well. It's one of those tales of a duality of life. A man that's a mild-mannered doctor by day, a good citizen, even a churchgoer, and yet he has this secret life. He's indulging in vice. In fact, he's found a way that he thinks he can have his sin and have none of the consequences. He, He made this special potion that turns him into another person, Mr. Hyde. His plan seems to be working perfectly. Mr. Hyde has all the fun and he reaps none of the consequences until something surprising happens to Dr. Jekyll. He starts to lose control over Mr. Hyde. He says, at one point, my new power tempted me until I fell into slavery. The very thing he thought was his outlet of freedom, it turns out it's enslaving him. Hyde starts showing up with greater frequency. His potion no longer controls him, and he falls deeper and deeper into despair. This is a very well-known classic tale that shows us of a reality that humanity has been living with as long as it's existed. Our souls can be enslaved even without us noticing. It's for that reason that John chapter 8, 31 to 47 was written. Because our souls, whether we realize it or not, need to be set free. And John 8 shows us how that will happen. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free from two things. First in 31 through 36, we'll see how he sets us free from slavery to sin. And then in 37 through 47, we'll see how he sets us free from the deception of the devil. Whether we realize it or not, our souls have chains around them, and only Jesus can set us free. Let's begin in verses 31 through 36. We need to be freed from our slavery to sin. We are at a point in John's gospel. Jesus is at a religious festival. He has been teaching in front of a crowd of religious people. These religious people have just responded positively to Jesus. If you look back to verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, that was the teaching he was giving, many believed in him. Sounds like things are going well for Jesus. He's got a whole group of people that are eating what he is feeding them. 
You would think that this would be the time for him to reap his harvest, to lock in these people as disciples. But as is often the case with Jesus, he does not do what you would expect. In verse 31, he tells them that they are not likely genuine disciples. Look, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus gives a definition for what a true disciple is, implying that there is such thing as false disciples. That definition has two parts. First is that they will persevere in the truth, that they will hear the word of Jesus and they will remain in it, abide in it, that they won't just have a a passing sort of relationship with the word of Jesus. It will become their guiding light in the very thing that shapes them from the inside out. I'll just pause a moment and say this is one of the reasons why we are committed here at College Park to preaching the Bible. It's because definitional to being a disciple of Jesus is to abide in the word of Jesus. And there's no way to do that better than to regularly let the word of God reshape us from the inside out. The second test is in verse 32. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They must be liberated by the truth. Now, before we get to what that actually means, look at the reaction that he gets in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their answer is essentially, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're already free. We don't need to be free. Now, you need to understand a little bit of the history of the people he was speaking to at that moment. First century Jews were uh, especially nationalistic, prideful of their heritage. They were a people that by any standard had been enslaved a number of times. They had been enslaved by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Greeks. Now they were under the thumb of the Romans. By any objective measure, you would say these were a people that were not free. And yet they had a pride that even if they were under the rule of some foreign pagan empire, that still their allegiance was to God and God alone. Um, And just a few years after this takes place, there would be a uh, battle at a place called Masada. A group of Jews would take this mountain fortress and they would hold off against the Romans. Uh, The Roman army was overwhelming. There was no way they were going to win this fight. But they held out for a long time and they made it a a difficult slog to finally take the fortress. And, And right before the Romans were about to breach Masada and capture all the rebels, there was a rallying cry that went up amongst the Jews there. This is what they said. They said, long ago, we determined to be slaves neither to the Romans nor anyone else save God. These were people that were determined to be free. That group of Masada were so determined that they committed suicide rather than being captured by the Romans. That's the type of thought that's going through the minds of the people that Jesus is talking to. So Jesus tells them, a a disciple of mine is someone that abides in my truth and who is set free. And immediately they say, we don't need to be set free, Jesus. So what sort of freedom is Jesus speaking about? If 
A bloodline isn't the sort of freedom he's speaking about. We need to know what it is. Well, verse 34 reveals it. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus tells them the slavery he's speaking of isn't national. It's not some army that's coming and occupying you. They are the invisible chains that sin places on a heart. Jesus tells us in that statement two aspects of this slavery. One, you can tell those invisible chains are there by the fact that you sin. That is, if you doubt you are a slave to sin, all you have to do is watch your life long enough. Do you ever find yourself lying? Do you ever find yourself less than joyful as you do something you know you're supposed to do? Do you ever find yourself doing something that you have told others not to do? Jesus says that is evidence that you are a slave to sin. The second aspect is even more insidious. It's that sin actually compounds upon itself, that sin has a snare to it, that as you sin, you become more enslaved to sin. It's a well-known uh, uh, saying that when you sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow a rap- an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. You sow a lifestyle, you reap a destiny. I mean, you, you know this is the case in your own life, don't you? Every, every once in a while, you'll get a little peek about how easily you can be drawn into something. Maybe in a little more lighthearted example, think of the Pandora's box of chocolates that you might open up. You intend to have one, and five later, you ask yourself, how did that happen? Our self-control isn't nearly as sure as we like to think it is. It's like a, sin's like a python It wraps itself around us. Each movement towards sin tightens its grip until one day it claims our lives. Surely you've seen this. You've seen this in the patterns of addiction that are so obvious. Alcohol and drug abuse. It's heartbreaking to watch someone you love go down that road. And yet, even if that is sin writ large, easy for us to spot, it is the pattern of sin in all of our lives. If we sin and persist in sin, we are slaves to sin. And one day that sin will destroy us. Well, Jesus establishes that by this standard, all of us are in some sense enslaved to sin, which leaves us a question of where the solution comes from. Well, that's where he shows us in verses 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First, he shows them the difference in authority between a son and a slave. He says, if if, uh, you are a slave in a household, you really don't have any authority because you're not there forever. Uh, Jesus is referring back to the way Israelite slavery worked. It's not the same as American chattel slavery. You were not a a slave because of your ethnic group. You were not a slave forever. Uh, At most, you could be a slave for six uh, six years, and on the seventh year, it was required that you would be set free. 
Slaves were, even with saying that, they were not at the same level as anyone else in the family. A slave was temporary. A slave had to do the bidding of their master, and one day a slave would be out of the house and gone. By contrast, a son would be highest on the pecking order within the family, right below the father. The son would be the one to inherit. The son would be the one that would one day be responsible for the whole family. If you were to ask who could do something for you within an Israelite family, a slave would be at the bottom of the list, and a son would be near the top. Well, Jesus establishes that to say, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, Jesus as the son of the most important family there is, the family of God. Jesus as the eternal son of God. He has the authority to set us free from our slavery to sin. Well, he doesn't reveal how he has that authority here, but we know from the rest of the Bible how he has that authority. He has the authority to forgive sin to set us free from the power and dominion of sin because he has, was the obedient son that willingly went to the cross. He obeyed his father's will in everything, even to the giving up of his own life, to die as a sacrifice, yes, for those very sins that enslave us. He died. He was raised to new life to show us that he has the authority to declare us free of the clutches of sin and to truly give us a new life to live for God. Jesus is the son who has earned the right to set us free. And so if he says we are free, then friends, we are free indeed. So I need to ask you, maybe you're here this morning and you don't identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you're just here because you're Uh, Mom wanted you to come to church on Mother's Day or for whatever reason you're interested in church. I I hope you feel welcome while you're here. But I I need to ask you, does any of this resonate with you? Do you maybe sense that you are not as free as you would like to be? Do you ever find yourself doing something that you have told others they shouldn't be doing? Have you ever promised to yourself that you would never do that again? And then find yourself right back in the same place. You know, the world and the popular philosophies in the world teach you that going after whatever feels right is freedom. That being true to yourself is freedom. But friend, I'm here this morning to tell you that that's a lie. That freedom is not doing whatever you want. That's actually the height of bondage. It's just not obvious because the chains are invisible. True freedom is being free to live as you were made to live, to worship God, to be known by God, and to have a clear conscience before him. And friend, the only way you will ever find that type of freedom is by this man named Jesus. If you don't know what it is I'm talking about or you're interested in talking with someone about it after the service, I'll be available. I would love to have a conversation. For those of us who are believers, we need to be reminded how easily we can be wrapped up in the chains of sin yet again. It's not a very fine fine line between living a life of freedom 
and life of bondage to sin. Jesus told us that we must abide in his word. Brothers and sisters, if you are not actively fighting off your sin, if you're not actively killing your sin, it will find a way to ensnare you yet again. Now, it's also true that many of us this morning probably need to be encouraged in our fight against sin. Uh, Maybe as I say that, some of you are thinking, oh boy, here we go again. Am I really free from my sin? I mean, I know all the things I've done that I don't talk to others about. Does that mean that I'm not really a Christian? Friend, if that's you this morning, let me just point you back to the very definition Jesus gave of the disciple. Remember, he said that a disciple is someone that abides in the word of Christ and that that someone will be set free. That set free while abiding, that implies an ongoing liberation that needs to happen. Just because you're struggling with sin does not mean you're being dominated by it. Friend, it's not about you having a perfect sinless life or you having more victory than someone else. It's about you remaining in the word of Jesus. It's about you trusting him enough to let him let you set you free again and again. And that's an ongoing thing that all of us need to keep happening. Uh, let me just also say that one of the worst things you can do if you're in that spot is to close yourself off from other Christians It may seem like talking about a struggle with sin is the worst thing you can do, as if people will judge you or think less of you or reject you. And yet there is a freedom that comes. Very often God uses the encouragement of other believers to encourage us in the word of Jesus, to actually get us over the hump as we fight off sin. So let me just encourage you, be quick to tell other believers about your struggles with sin. Well, we've established here that Jesus needs to set us free from our slavery to sin. But that's not the only thing we need to be freed from. If our battle with sin is on the inside, the second thing we need to be freed from is an external force. In fact, an external person to us. We need to be freed from the deception of the devil. That's in verses 37 to 47. We need to be freed from the deception of the devil. There's not a lot of talk about the devil in the ways the Bible talks about it. Any, talks about him in any way. Uh, there's a documentary out right now. It's called Hail Satan. Um, and it reveals just how much our society has shifted on this question of the reality of the devil. There is a group of people that go around and they set up monuments to the devil in public places as a political leverage tool to get Christian uh, kind of heritage sites taken down. So maybe there's a uh, statue of the Ten Commandments in front of a courthouse. Well, they'll come up and they'll say, well, if you allow that religious observance, you need to also let us set up this altar to Satan here. And they use that as a tool to try and remove these religious heritage sites. Now, what you need to know about this group is the reason that they use this uh, allegiance to Satan is is not because they are uh, deep down convinced that Satan is the right leader. Um, They are a group of naturalists. They don't actually believe Satan or anything spiritual exists. 
And they believe that so strongly that they are willing to grab what we would say is the height of evil, an actual allegiance to the prince of darkness, and to use that as a political tool. What that reveals about our society is we probably are at a, a point where less people take seriously the threat of the one the Bible calls the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan, than ever before. C.S. Lewis warned against this in Screwtape Letters. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which a race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Well, our hope would be not to fall into either of those ditches this morning. Uh, I know that it's not typical that you spend Mother's Day talking about the devil. And yet, in God's providence, that is the text before us. And it, I, I trust that that means that uh, it's worth our spending the time to look at it. So the Bible talks about Satan as a very real, very powerful, very dangerous spiritual being. We aren't to think that the devil is equal to God as if some sort of uh, balance, there's some sort of balance in the spiritual realm between good and evil. No, no, the devil is a created being who has rebelled against God and does everything he can to destroy God's creations and to thwart God's purposes. In the beginning, in the garden, the devil was the one that tempted Adam and Eve to the first sin, causing the fall of humanity and the curse upon the world. The devil is the accuser who stands in heaven, hurling accusations against sinners, demanding that God bring punishment against them. As the gospels open up, we see the devil at work trying to prevent Christ from accomplishing his goal. He tempts him out in the wilderness, trying to get him to take earthly kingship over the kingship that his father would give him. In John's gospel, the devil is going to be the one responsible for Jesus' betrayal. He actually possesses Judas and leads him to betray Jesus, leading him to the cross. Well, Jesus here warns of the power of the devil and the sway he can have over even these very religious people who would think themselves to be the most free from the clutches of the devil. In verse 37, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and do you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus is going to give a, a series of hints that these people standing in front of him aren't the free people they think they are. As a matter of fact, they're under the deception of the devil. He's going to do it through this question of whose father is theirs. He first starts with their physical lineage. They gave the, uh, the objection, remember, that they are offspring of Abraham. That is, they are of the bloodline of Abraham. Jesus says, well, if that's the case, you're not acting like the children of Abraham. You're trying to kill me. That sounds like you have someone else that's your father. Next, he moves on to their spiritual ancestry in verses 39 through 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. 
You are doing the works your father did. Now it shifted from the flesh and blood, bloodline heritage to the spiritual. Abraham is our father is a way of saying Abraham is our spiritual hero. We are of the right theological school. We believe the right things. And yet Jesus says that their works reveal something else. You see, Abraham, when he heard truth, he responded to it. When God spoke to Abraham, he obeyed. He stepped out in faith. But look at these people. They hear the truth from Jesus, and their reaction is to want to kill him. That's not Abraham's kids. That sounds like the kids of somebody else. The third and more, most <clears throat> stark reason why they are said to be children of the devil is the way that they respond to the truth. It's the way they respond to the truth. Just take your eye and walk with me through these verses that are interspersed here, talking about the way that they respond to the truth. In verse 40, they want to kill Jesus because he speaks the truth to them. In verse 43, they, they cannot hear what he says because they can't bear even to hear his word. In verse 46, even though Jesus is sinless and he tells them the truth, they still don't believe him. In verse 47, the reason they don't hear him is they're not of God or born of God or children of God. And then the sledgehammer, verse 45. Jesus tells them, because he tells them the truth, they do not believe. Let that sink in for a second. It's not in spite of me telling you the truth, you won't believe. It's because I tell you the truth, you won't believe. The very reason that they won't believe is Jesus speaks the truth. And they have an allergy to the truth because they've inherited, inherited it from their father, the devil. Jesus gets here to the root of their unbelief. Yes, it's true they're slaves to sin, but it's even also more true. They're deceived by the very devil himself. It's a sober, sobering reality to think about this, that a powerful spiritual being would have so much sway over us that he could actually keep us from hearing the very words of truth from Jesus' mouth. It's not the only place in Scripture that talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 should be up on the screen if you can't flip there that fast. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Talking about unbelievers, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You can think of the parable of the sower. As the word is being sent out, the image is used of someone throwing out seeds on the ground. And remember, some of that seed, it doesn't have a chance to grow and germinate because birds come and eat it up off the ground. Those birds represent Satan and the work that he does to deceive the world. See, friends, our problem is not just that our hearts are tilted against God, that we morally love sin and are a slave to sin. Our problem is even deeper than that. We are actually deceived 
so that we have an allergy to the truth. And when we actually hear the truth, our natural reaction is to hate it. That's some pretty deep darkness. So how does anyone get out of this sort of slavery if even the word of Christ is something that they can't hear? Well, the answer actually doesn't come in this passage. If you've been with us in John's gospel, you you know the answer because back in chapter 6, Jesus told some people how it is anyone comes to Christ. He said, all who the Father gives me come to me and I will raise them up in the last day and they will all be taught by God. The only way someone finds their way free from the slavery of sin or from the deception of the devil is a work of God within them. The spirit of God changing their heart from the inside out, taking off the spiritual blinders, giving them ears to hear and eyes to see. It's the work of God to even allow us to hear the gospel of Jesus and realize our need for it. That same passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 6, it tells us how that happened for each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not. It was a miracle that God did in our hearts. In verse 6, it said, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as surely as God did a work to make light come out of darkness when he made the world and the cosmos and everything else, if you believe in Jesus this morning, it's because God did a miracle in your heart to open your eyes from the deceit of the devil to see the beauty and the light of Christ. Now, friends, the implications for this are massive. Now, before we turn to thinking of others, we need to think of our own heart. Because it would be so easy to allow this word to totally focus on those we think of that are under the seat of the devil and not realize our own propensities, even as believers, to be deceived by him. You realize, brothers and sisters, that every sermon is a battleground. Every sermon is a battleground. Every time you come to church on Sunday, there is seed being cast out on your heart. And the question is, will it find good soil? You know, think of all the different ways that the devil is working to try and make sure you do not hear the word of Christ on a Sunday morning. Think of how many times the kids manage to have a meltdown right before you're about to head out the door. So you show up to church all stressed out thinking about how difficult your life is. Think about how quickly as you're listening to a sermon, you start thinking of other people that need to hear it before you think of your own heart and your own need for this word. Think of how quickly your mind, if you let it, will go toward the thing you're doing after church or that thing someone said to you the day before church or the thing you have to do at work the day after church. Anything to keep your mind away from the word that's trying to make its way into your heart. Well, friends, the, the devil would love nothing more than to continue to deceive even those believers that gather on Sunday morning. Realize the battle that you are in for 
come ready to wage war for the spiritual war you're in. Second, let's realize, especially when we're talking about evangelizing, realize what type of battlefield you're on. You know, it's a daunting thing to try and talk anyone into anything. Some people are good at sales. They're good at kind of talking people into things. They're pretty rare. And they tell you it takes a lot of work to talk someone into changing their opinion on something. But when we're sharing the good news of Jesus with someone, we're not giving a sales pitch. We're not just trying to convince someone to buy what we're selling. No, in that moment, there is a spiritual battle going on. And and realize that our enemy is far more powerful than any of our intellects or persuasive powers or any of our apologetic arguments. As you are telling someone about Jesus and, and their need to find the freedom from slavery of sin and the wonders of the new life that he can give, give them, realize that in that moment there is someone else trying to keep them from hearing what you are saying. Friend, if you are just evangelizing, using your own intellect and your own persuasiveness, you are not taking seriously what the task that God has called you to take. Sharing the gospel with people is at its foundation a spiritual enterprise. If there's ever a reason to pray about something, it's the reality that the devil is active and even blinding those who we're trying to help to see the light of Christ. If you're not in the habit of praying before you have an evangelistic conversation, let me just say you are missing the most crucial step to helping anyone come to Jesus. Now, at the same time, though, I don't want you to be discouraged because while the devil is indeed very powerful, while he is very effective at his tools of deception, the devil lost. And the devil will continue to lose until the day he loses forever. You see, because this very devil that has tried to keep people from hearing of Jesus was the same devil that tried to stop Jesus himself from accomplishing his mission. He's the same devil that thought the cross would thwart God and his glory. And instead, he actually led Jesus to the moment of his greatest glory. In his deception and in his schemes, the devil actually unleashed our liberation by sending Jesus to die for sinners so that we could be set free, both from our sin and his deception. Friend, that means when you go into your evangelistic conversation, you can have great boldness. You can know that the devil has already been overcome by Jesus. And it's a Miracle that Jesus loves to do to set another person free from the devil's clutches. So be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus. Well, we saw this morning that we need to be freed. Freed from our slavery to sin. Freed from the deception of the devil. That's true whether we can see these chains or not. That's true of every human that's ever lived. But the good news is that Jesus is in the business of setting slaves free. He knocks off the chains, whether we can see them or not. 
Jekyll and Hyde ends on a very tragic note. Dr. Jekyll becomes increasingly desperate to control Hyde. His potion stops working. Hyde actually murders someone along the way, and Jekyll feels the walls closing in on him. So in a desperate act to find freedom, Jekyll takes his own life. It's a story of a man enslaved to sin who takes his life to find freedom. It's a very, very bleak story. But this morning we have a better one, don't we? We've got a true story of a man who gave up his life to set people free from their sin and who three days later got up from the grave and guaranteed they would be free for all eternity. Praise be to God, if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. Let's pray.